Okay, welcome everybody to the uh, Kepsar seminar following the student talks. Um, I'm Simon Kelly, for those of you who don't know, I'm here just as a decoration. Uh, it's my pleasure um, and privilege to introduce Professor Jonathan Butterworth. Um, just to a very quick list, Jonathan is currently the head of department at, uh, at Maths and Physics in UCL. He's the Atlas Standard Model con Convener. He's holder of a Wolfson Research Merit Award for the Royal Society. He's a member of the STC, STFC Science Board, an editorial advisor on the panel for Nature Communications, which just kind of emphasizes how good it is to have him here. He also writes a blog for The Guardian, uh, Life, and, Life and Physics, if I remember rightly, yeah. with a Twitter feed. And a few minutes ago, his Twitter feed said that he was in Milton Keynes, which is... <laughs> It's true. He's taking his reputation in his hands. Um, John grew up in Manchester, and for those of you who understand what I mean, he grew up in the blue part of Manchester. <laughs> he then went to Oxford, uh, got a BA in physics, uh, a DPhil in particle physics, and then he moved on to Hamburg um, before he joined UCL in 1995. His research interests uh, originally focused on the ZS experiment and the uh, Hadron Electron Ring in Hamburg, ranging from supersymmetry to studies of the strong interaction via jet and heavy quark production. I actually understand. I do really understand what that means. He was also uh, part of the new vertex detector at Zeus, and in 2003 was the Zeus physics coordinator. John's research now is centered on the ATLAS experiment at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. He spends quite a lot of time there at the moment. He leads several physics processes at the LHC, which will help us discover more about electron weak symmetry breaking, which is what he's talking about here, um, basically why things have mass, uh, and that includes searching for the infamous Higgs boson. There are some interesting results coming out at the moment, um, and I, I don't know how many of these interesting results John will talk to us about today, but there's one very important result that I'm not sure if he'll talk about, um, it, it, it was the 15th of May, um, and if I get the voice right, the, the important result, but may not be in his talk, was uh, Manchester City, three, <laughs> Queen's Park Rangers, two. John Butterworth. Thank you very much. It's, it's frightening how much information there is about people out there somewhere, isn't it? But yes, um, you might notice I'm a little hoarse. I was shouting a lot on Sunday. I'm sorry about that. But I think it will get me through. Um, and indeed, it's a pleasure to be here uh, with Milton Keynes and to talk about this. I, you might guess that I, I uh, talk about this quite often. I talk to various audiences, to schools and to the public and to other scientists about it. And it's interesting that the the same slides pretty much work for everyone. I'm going to try and explain some, I say different things about some of them, but I, I'm going to try and explain the real science of this and not just the gee whiz stuff. And although I've given this talk um, many times before, I've only given it actually once before because the last few slides are the latest results and they only came out a month ago, so I've only given it once in between. So every time I give it, I update the last few slides. So we will hopefully get to the, the, the state of play on the, on the hunt for the Higgs boson on the way, but, but really what I want to do on, on, before we get there is explain to you why, why that is such a, a big deal, why that's so important, why the Higgs is not just another, the last stamp in the collection of the standard model particles, it's a really fundamental, fundamentally different linchpin of the whole of our understanding of, of physics at the smallest, small, smallest distance scales. Um, and I want to be able to explain to you how, you know, what the experimental evidence is, what is the technique, what do we really do with the LHC and why is it so big and why is it taking so long. So, let's start with a picture of it. This is the view that I get um, a couple of times a week. Um, this is Mont Blanc in the background. This is Lake Geneva. And I'm usually flying in or out of the airport, which is here. Um, the, the, this on, uh, circle here is the path of the Large Hadron Collider. Um, it's not, obviously not painted on the ground like that, but it uh, <laughs> tells you where it is. And this is the main lab of CERN. Um, it's inside this tunnel, this tunnel is underground, it's about the diameter, I, I'm near enough to London that I can probably get away with another joke here, but it's the same colour as a circle line, it's also the same, um, the same radius, circumference, the same length as a, as, a, as a circle line roughly, and inside it are protons going um, in opposite directions at the highest energies we've, we've ever managed to get in a lab. 
Um, the beams of protons are about uh, the, the width of a human hair, and the, the, they collide head-on um, in four places on this ring. It's 27 kilometers around. There's the Atlas experiment here, which is one I work on. There's the CMS experiment over here, and then there's the LHCB and ALICE here. ALICE is pri primarily aimed at heavy ion collisions, and LHCB is looking at CP and matter antimatter asymmetry. I won't, because of time, really say anything about those experiments here. I will concentrate on the results of Atlas and CMS, which are what we call general purpose detectors. Um, and again, so UCL and, and the UK built chunks of these. Um, and uh, I'm going to show you some pictures of them. But UCL built, built um, a lot of the electronics and things for Atlas. Imperial actually coincidentally built CMS. So the, the circle line thing still works. This is... Uh, <laughs> So and you can see that all the excitement is in Bloomsbury and South Kensington, just some fields. <laughs> so um, so and this, these, these, the blue line here, for instance, is the pre-injector, for, for, which was the SBS, which was the previous experiment where Carlo Rudbeer and van der Meer ran, won the Nobel Prize for finding the W and Z boson with it. And one of these lines, I can never, it's not that one, that's, that's a, linear collider, a linear injector. One of these lines is firing neutrinos off over here as well, which you may have heard about, but I won't say any more about those either today, unless you ask me afterwards. Okay, so these are the, the players in the... Oh, one other thing I wanted to say about this. Um, I'm not an accelerator physicist. I work on the detectors, of course, but um, one, one very common question is, you know, why is it so big? Why do we have to go to so big? Now, the, and the, the answer to that is we need high energies, and I'll say why we want the high energies later. But the interesting thing about this is, is what limits the energy that we can get to. Um, and it's not actually the acceleration or the, it's not the speed of the particles. Getting, there are radio frequency cavities in here at various points, and the way it works is as a standing electromagnetic wave, and there every time a particle comes past, it kind of surfs that wave, and it's all in sync so that they, they, they uh, shoot around like that. So as so long as you can get them coming back again, they'll get kicked as many times as you like. And if you've got the, the RF power, actually getting the radio frequency power in there is not the problem. The problem is getting them to come back again. And it's the, the real limiting technology in this is the superconducting magnets, which bend the, the particles. These particles really don't want to go. Uh, they really want to go in a straight line more than any other particle we've ever had in the lab. You know, it's Newton's law. That's what they want to do. So it's, it's the bending of these bending power of the magnets is actually the limiting factor. Of why, that's why we have such a big circumference tunnel. And also, if you remember 2008, the first time we turned it on, it blew up. Um, <laughs> and that was these magnets. That's, that was the, the, it was one of the, it was the very high currents going through one of these magnets, and the divider um, had a quench. It stopped being superconducting and, and failed. And there was a, a very silly, catas catas catastrophic series of events after that, that that we lost basically an eighth of the ring. Um, but it's all back again now. But the other thing, the, the reason it's worth going over that kind of wounding history is that, in fact, we're only running at half the design energy at the moment. Um, and it's actually performing incredibly well at that design energy, and the results we're getting exceeded, are exceeding what we thought we would get, but we will at some point go up to full design energy. Um, we shut down at the end of this year to upgrade the safety um, um, management things, the quench, quench protection and things in those joints, and then we'll come back at closer to the design energy. Um, this year, we're running at 8 tera electron volts central mass energy, so 4 tera electron volts per beam. Um, and uh, we were running at 7 last year, so it's a slight increase. But the, the main thing is we're getting more and more data. Okay, so these are the, the players in the game of particle physics, or some of them. Um, this, is, this is the kind of Lego standard model image of what, of what, um, what we think of the call them elementary or fundamental particles. I'm well aware that when we talk about fundamental physics and fundamental particles, it irritates the pants off a lot of other scientists. So I would say that what I mean when I say fundamental is this is the stuff that's not made of other stuff. It's not, no deeper than that, but these, as far as we know, these are the only things in the universe that are not made of anything else. Everything else is made of these. Whether you think that's more significant than fundamental or you know, complexity is, is more important, that's, that's not a problem. I'm not, I'm not giving myself any airs calling it fundamental physics, but that, that's what I mean. These are, these are, as far as we know, not made of anything else. In fact, everything's made of them, and the up and the down quark here are um, protons. Two ups and a down is a proton with gluons here, a strong nuclear force bind, exchange between them to bind them together. And that also binds protons and neutrons in, into, the, um, into the nucleus. And then there's electrons, which is the first fundamental particle to have been found, and as far as we know is still fundamental. Um, and then the neutrino, which comes with it. And neutrinos are... They're both ubiquitous. There are millions of them flying through us all the time from the sun. But they're also, they don't have any electrical charge. They don't feel the strong force. They only feel the weak force, which is carried by the W and the Z bosons. 
and so they're rather hard to detect. Um, you see along the side here, we've got the force carriers. So I've already mentioned the gluon. The, the quarks feel, uh, 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 stuck together by the gluon. W and the Z bosons carry the weak force, and the photon carries the um, electromagnetic force. Um, there, there are a few things. Well, before I get the, 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 the kind of nub of this and the, the other title I gave, which is actually printed on things, is about electroweak symmetry breaking. And the key thing about the LHC is about the, the photon and the W and the Z. And the fact that the, the weak force is very, very different. It's weak at, at everyday energies from, from electromagnetism, but at LHC energies, there's a symmetry between them, which is restored, and that's to do with the mass. So that's the kind of main theme of the talk, and that's where the Higgs plays its role, and I'll come back to that later. Just before we move on to that, there are some obvious things. We're not, we're not so smart. There are some obvious things missing or puzzles about this picture. One is, why are there, why is there three of everything? Why, why, why are the, is the pattern of quarks repeated with a charm and a strange and a top and a bottom? And then there's a new one, which is a heavier version of the electron and the tau, which is a heavier version of that, and then the neutrino is following that. That's not predicted in the theory. It's just observed to be true. Um, it, we know that, that because there are th three is the minimum number of these generations you need to have in order to introduce some matter-antimatter asymmetry, and we know that, in general, there's more matter than antimatter, so that's a good thing, but it doesn't seem to work out quite right, and it's still that's what LHCV is looking at. One of the mysteries of the standard model is why the matter-antimatter asymmetry is, is what it is. But, that's not, but the, the fact that there are three is something you put into the theory by hand. It's a bit awkward. The other... the, the um, the other thing we're saying here is that, of course, these, there are four fundamental forces, but these two carry the weak force. This is the strong and this is the electromagnetic one. The elephant in the room is gravity. It's not here. Um, it doesn't fit in the standard model. We'd rather ignore it. Um, you, you know, we, we would really like to find out where it fits, but, um, but uh, the LHC may give us some clues, but probably not, I would say, on that. Um, and uh, the other thing to say is, you know, if you look at the... It always strikes me. If you look at the periodic table, for instance, in chemistry... And you look at the structure, it's all arranged by the properties of where, where things are. That, that structure, arranged by properties, is similar to what we've done here, arranged them by properties. And in the periodic table, of course, it's a, it's a giveaway clue that, to the substructure of atoms. It's the, the, the electron shells are what's driving that. This may be a giveaway clue to substructure in these so-called fundamental particles, but as to what the clue is telling us, we don't know yet. We might get some hints from the LHC. So I'd, I've just gone through some of the open questions in particle physics. Just because the other thing that might be missing is dark matter. Of course, we don't know what that is. It's not in, in the, uh, the the standard model of particle physics, but it seems to be around in the universe. Um, just so you don't get the idea that the Higgs is, is the only thing we've got to do. It's the, it's the thing we're doing now. It's really important and interesting, and I will talk about it for the rest of the talk. But there are other questions that are worth addressing as well, with it, even within particle physics. So the, the general purpose detectors, this is one of them. This is ATLAS. Um, I'll, I'll say something about the technology, but you can think of them, um, if, if you're not interested in the technology, just, just think of them as enormous digital cameras. We, we go to all this effort of trying to collide these super high-energy proton beams together. When they do collide, there's a lot of energy available, so e equals mc squared, there are a lot of particles produced, and we're looking at those particles to get clues as to what's going on inside the protons. Um, we really need to record all that data as carefully and precisely as possible, and that's what this is designed to do, and it's not easy. So this is the diagram of it. This is the beam is, the axis is here. The collision point is in the middle here. Um, these are people. give you some idea of the scale of the thing. Um, and it's, it's essentially a cylinder that's surrounded by different uh, uh, cylindrical layers, concentric cylindrical layers of um, te not different technologies. So the innermost one, we were just hearing in a previous talk about semiconductors. This is a, we, we use semiconductors not for the computing power, but because electron hole pairs are very easy to excite. So if you have a charged particle that goes through silicon, you have very low mass of silicon, which is good because you don't want to disturb the particle. You want to measure its position very carefully. But you can get a very high signal. You put a voltage over it, and because the band gap is small, you can, you can make a lot of electron hole pairs and read them out, and that tells you where the electron went for a very low cost of energy. We used to use gaseous detectors, ionization detectors, and obviously an ionization event is a much bigger perturbation of the particle than just creating an electron hole pair. So these are really precise, and they, they have re resolutions of uh, microns, tens of microns, and they can tell us what, what went on very close to the interaction point. Um, so that's a, a tracking detector. It picks up the, the, the directions of all the charged particles, and it's surrounded by a solenoidal magnet, so the bend of the charged particles will also allow you to determine the momentum that they have. Um, then we, outside of that is a calorimeter. In Atlas, it's made of liquid argon, a scintillator. Um, 
that's the first point on which any of the neutral particles get detected um, because only the charged particles will register in the silicon detector. But the, this is, the liquid argon is so dense, it's just designed to stop everything. So the photons and things that you've created and the neutrons and stuff will all be, um, will be measured there, and it just tells you the energy. So by the time you get here, in fact, you've got a good measure of the energy of practically every particle and the tracking of, uh, direction of all the charged particles. Um, you might say, then, what on earth is the rest of it for? It's actually for, for one, <laughs> just for one kind of particle, but it's the muon, which is um, this guy, the heavy version of the electron, which is stable on the time scale of our events. And it's, it's like a heavy electron. It punches, it does, it's charged, so it does, we do see it in here. But then it punches right through the liquid argon because it's like firing a bullet at candy floss as far as the electrons are concerned. It's just so much heavier than the electrons, it just punches right through them. And it doesn't feel the strong force, so it doesn't interact much with the nucleus in the liquid argon either. So it's basically the only particle that, that will go through. And these things are just more charged particle detectors here, so that, and they're, they're very low rate. But if you, see an, if you see a muon, there aren't many muons around in nature, so if you see a muon, it's often a, a sign that something that the event was interesting and you really want to trigger on that event, for instance. So we, we use these to decide which events to save, amongst other things. I said that's the only particle that gets through. Of course, the neutrino will get through anything, and you'll not see it even in these here. And the only way you know that there's a neutrino being produced, and they do get produced a lot, the only way you know is energy-momentum conservation, so we've kind of hermetically surrounded the detector. And if you see a load of things flying one way, then you've got to hypothesize there was something going the other way, even if you didn't see it. And usually it's a, a neutrino. Um, of course, it could be a dark matter particle if we're creating them as well, and you need to predict the rates of neutrinos and see if they, they match up to what you expected. Okay, so that's Atlas. This is what it looked like before we installed it. This is one of the guys who built it. This, this, is, uh, this picture made the centerfold of FHM in about 2006, I think. So, so I knew something, something special in physics was happening at that point. <laughs> um, this, is, uh, this, is a, how we, this is how we represent the, the pictures of the, from our big digital camera, if you like. All the muon chambers are still here, but they're all squashed in, so they fit on the screen. And the silicon detector, because it's more precise, is, is blown up, is enlarged. This is a, a, a pretty um, dull event in, in terms of physics, but it was a very exciting event because it was the moment. You see, the beam energy here is not, not where we were running at 7 TV that year, most of the year. But this is the first time we recorded any collision event that was a higher energy than the Tevatron and Fermilab, which was the previous high energy, energy collider, which was running at 2 TV. And it was, I think we irritated the, um, the, the LHC people because they were just practicing. They weren't, <laughs> they weren't testing the thing. They didn't want us to take any data. It was actually one of my students. Who taught, we, we, at UCL, one of our technical contributions was actually we and Birmingham University wrote the event display, this, this thing. So all the, all the, every time you see these LHC pictures, the code was written in, in London and Birmingham. And um, actually one of my PhD students was on shift. And as well, and so we, we, we kind of got together. We saw that the LHC had got stable beams, and we thought, I bet they're going to try and collide them. And, and, and so we turned it on, turned the detector on, the guys on the shift. You can see that we weren't really ready because none of the tracks are bending because we didn't turn the magnet on, we didn't have time. They're all straight. So, and, and then, yeah, they, they kind of passed the beams through each other, and we got an event, and then we put it on the, on the web page, and it was in the news the next morning. It was very exciting, and uh, our spokesperson was very pleased with us, and, and CMS were not. <laughs> so that was good. <laughs> what, what, what's um, a more typical event now, uh, which is higher energy and, and more interesting, is this one. Same kind of layout, except now I've, I've switched the, layout, the um, representations, but this is an end-on view. The beams would be colliding in the plane of the screen in this one. This is where they, they come along here and collide there. Um, and what you see here is, is a huge bunch of charged particles um, with the with curving now because the magnet's on, then energy deposits in the calorimeter with the yellow blobs are where they stop. There's no muons in this event, I don't think. Um, so you don't see anything going through. But this is what happens. This is the kind of typical, really, high-energy collision. So the, the proton is made of quarks and gluons. And really, we're at such high energies, the resolution we have is, is the proton is, is an enormous pizza. It's kind of Lorentz contracted in one direction. It's very large on the scale of, our, uh, of, of the energies that we're dealing with. So we're really a quark and gluon collider, not, not a proton, um, proton collider. And so when a quark and a, or a gluon bounce off each other, they fly off in opposite directions. Um, but we never actually see quarks and gluons in, in the detector. So what, what you get is the, the, it's asymptotic freedom, it's called. It's, it's um, within the pizza, if you like, they behave as though they're free, but when they get to the edge of the pizza, they, they get, the, 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 the force gets stronger. The strong nuclear force is not like the electromagnetic one. It doesn't fall off as you go, as you separate things. It actually increases. So it's more like, it's, it's like they're on strings, elastic bands. 
And at some point, as they fly away, then they remember that they're, they're attached to each other by these strings, a color, um, in quantum chromodynamics, we call it. And um, they get, you get a huge amount of potential energy in the string between, as you stretch two quarks away from each other and try and make them free from each other. You get a huge amount of potential energy in the force between them. At some point, E equals mc squared, it becomes energetically cheaper to create another anti-quark quark pair and make the string shorter, but, but have create at the expense of, of some extra mass. And that's what happens. In fact, it happens many, many times, and that's why you get all these particles here will be hadrons, uh, quarks and gluons, full, full of quarks and gluons. And you get this jet or spray. The jet was mentioned in the introduction. This is a jet. Um, and uh, and it, it's, a, it's a bit of a mess, but its um, direction and its energy and things reflect what happened to the initial quark, and you can do rather precise calculations of what you expect the quark to have done. You have to put some modeling in to see what you think it would have happened to it on the way to becoming a, um, a hadrons, but in the end, you can marry the two up and, and, and understand what's going on and work out what the distributions of the quarks and gluons were and whether anything else interested was, introduced, was, was produced in the way, on the way in. This is just the towers of energy. It's kind of the, the cylinder unfolded and shown as represented as towers of energy. So that's a much more typical event. Um, one thing worth bearing in mind is, again, just back to the technology for a second, we have collisions happening every 50 nanoseconds in this, they, they, because of the RF bunches that I mentioned, you know, the waveform form that's accelerating these things. The, the protons are not a continuous stream, they come in little bunches um, every 50 nanoseconds. And... Uh, the, one of the numbers, I'm not very good at numbers, but one of the numbers I remember is the speed of light is about one foot per nanosecond. Um, I don't even like, I don't like using imperial units either, but, but that one just sticks in my head. And the, this, and the detector is, is tens of feet across, okay? All these particles are basically traveling the speed of light. But this tells you that within 50, 50 nanoseconds is not very long. The particles haven't left the detector before the next lot are coming from the next collision, okay? So the whole thing is, is timed in, synchronized in the readout of the detector so you know which collision, which bit of data belongs to which collision. And that's the real challenge and the triggering on it. And it comes in so fast we can't record every event either. We don't want to because most of them are not so interesting. But you have to work out whether you want the event very quickly as well. And all the electronics for that is, is something we worked on in the UK and in UCL in particular. Um, and it gets even worse because these bunches now are very dense. So this is a, now actually a more typical event where you see that this is one bunch in time, one 50 nanosecond time bucket. And there are about 10, excuse me, there are about 10 um, collision vertices in here, all at the same time. So and the only way we can tell the difference is because the, the tracks are coming from different ones. And then you see the beauty of these muons, because this one here is the one of these that we'd be interested in. You see that two muons have been produced, and they've gone through to the muon chambers, they've punched through the calorimeter as well. And actually, it's a muon and plus a positive and a negative muon. And if you add their mass together, it's as if they came from a decay of a Z boson, which is one of the interesting things that we look for. And you can pick that out from this mess with your, uh, some, level, some of it online, the selection online, and, um, and also uh, then afterwards the reconstruction software that will tell you which, what belongs to what vertex and which one you care about. So I mentioned this equation, I, you know, it's, it's late in the afternoon and I know a lot of you have been in a lot of talks all, all afternoon already, so I, I'm going to keep this simple, but I thought I could get away with one equation. I've mentioned it already a couple of times. What I want to do is just give you kind of three reasons of why, why high energy is important for studying this kind of stuff. Thank you very much. Um, so the first one is, is the kind of easiest one, and it's arguably the best one. If you think that those fundamental particles that I showed you earlier and not the whole story, then the most likely thing is that there are more and there are going to be at higher masses. And the reason we haven't seen them yet is because they're at higher mass and it takes an awful lot of energy to produce them, by, according to this equation. So if you go to higher energy, there's always a chance that you will excite a new fundamental degree of freedom of nature, that you'll see a new particle, basically, that, that you'll, you'll see that happen. So that's one good reason for looking at very high energies. I think that a more... That, that sounds like some kind of uh, super high-energy fishing trip, which is fair enough for some, some aspects of what we're doing. But what I, the way I prefer to think, think of it is, is in this way, in terms of resolution. Um, the, the, the cartoons are not the best, I agree. But uh, the, the, the point here really is that if you want to see the blue blob, you can't do it with this wave, you can do it with that wave. I mean, if radar is the wavelength of radar is meters is good for seeing ships and planes, but it would be terrible if our eyes used radar because we wouldn't be able to resolve people because it, it's, the wavelength is too long. Similarly, you know, electron microscopes you have, have shorter wavelengths than optical light, and that's why they can see finer detail. 
what we're doing is, is studying nature at very, very short distances, so we need the shortest wavelengths ever, okay? And the gluons and things and quarks that are exchanged between the protons, you can think of the super, super uh, short wavelength probes. And then the connection you need to make is, is um, the, 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 the idea that, okay, short wavelength, high frequency means high energy. Now, that's quantum mechanics at some level, so the physicists will know it already, but there, there is a good analogy for this as well, which is that, um, you know, if you imagine the wavelength, imagine a double bass string, and you, uh, you try and excite, you excite the vibration in it, you get a standing wave, the wavelength will be twice the length of the string, so there'll be a, 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 an oscillation. And it's quite easy to make a loud noise like that with it. Um, if you half it, you go up an octave in, in, in height, and you may not notice it, but it becomes a little harder to, to excite a, vib a vibration in it. If you, take, if you imagine taking a double bass string down to about a couple of centimeters long, you'd have a very high note if you could get a note out of it. But to get a note out of it, you'd have to hit it so hard, because, and you have to put so much energy in to excite the high-frequency vibration of the mode. And that's essentially what's going on in quantum mechanics. Now, blue light is a shorter frequency. Blue photons are higher energy than red, and, and that goes all the way to gamma rays being super high energy, super high frequency, super short wavelength and you know, radar and radio waves being very long and low energy photons. And what we're not using photons mostly, we're using gluons, but it's the same principle. They're just quantum of, of energy and, and they have a very short wavelength. The Broglie wavelength associated with them is very short because they're very high energy and that's because we want, and we need them to be very high energy because we want to study the internal structure, possibly even of quarks, if there is such a stuff. The other thing it gets called is the, um, is the Big Bang machine. And we, you, you hear the media will certainly talk about us recreating the... Uh, conditions of the Big Bang, and astonishingly enough, there's some truth in that, although I don't particularly like the, 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 way, of, the, the way they put it often. But if you imagine this is, this is the, uh, the universe now, from a physicist's point of view, um, it's like full of spherical cows, I presume, um, it's expanding, and, and in fact, the astronomers tell us the rate of expansion is increasing. But if, if you run the, the clock backwards, it obviously it was smaller in the past, and the energy was the same because energy is conserved. So the energy density was very large in the early universe. Um, and large energy density means high temperature, and that means all the particles are moving very fast. It's very hot. Um, and in fact, every, at some point as you go back in time far enough, every particle in the universe will be moving and colliding in, in equilibrium with the other ones with energies equivalent to one of our pairs of quarks or gluons that hit each other at the LHC. So we're taking a few very lucky quarks and gluons and, and giving them an example collision, which would be what every particle was experiencing in the early universe. So there is a sense in which we're, we're recreating the conditions of the early universe, but uh, not in a sense that should worry the, the Genevois about us blowing them up with it. Um, uh, we, you know, this, this physics that we're studying is the physics of the universe today as much as it's physics of the early universe. But in the early universe, it was kind of equilibrium physics, whereas now it's, you have to work quite hard to, to create those conditions. This is the kind of fancier picture of that. So this, you've got a time axis here, 13.7 billion years, degrees Kelvin here, cosmic microwave background of three, about three Kelvin now. And this is the, uh, the, the um, structure, you know, DNA and statues and stuff, planets, <laughs> atoms. And as you go this, in this, back in time, the temperature's going up, and at some point, the ambient temperature is enough that it will ionize everything, and everything's a plasma. Electrons can't stay bound to the atoms anymore because of the collisions. At some point, actually, in the nuclei will break up. At some point, even the protons will break up. And you've kind of got different phases of physics going on here, and we're operating here at the LHC, where you see these Ws start popping up. And that's a, that's a very significant scale in physics. It's not, I mean, it, all of these are significant. It's all interesting, but this is something new happening here, where the Ws and Zs start popping out. Okay, and this so, um, and 300. This is this uh, ionization, for instance, is the, the surface of last scattering where your astronomers know that that's when photons decoupled from the rest of matter, and that's where the cosmic microwave background and COBE and all, all the, the background fluctuations information comes from there. Alice is looking at quark gluon plasma, which is about here, and as I say, the general purpose detectors are studying here, which is the electroweak symmetry breaking scale. So that's kind of why. High energies are interesting um, from a physics point of view. And I've also said something about you know, how the detector works and how the accelerator works. I want to now try and tell you, you know, what do we do when we say, what does it mean when we say we've discovered a new particle or we're analyzing the data? What are we doing when we analyze the data? And the way we think about this is in terms of these diagrams. It's a Feynman diagram. Um, Richard Feynman was, was uh, the guy who came up with quantum electrodynamics and got the Nobel Prize for it, of course. He was also a fantastic teacher and really good at visualizing um, impossible to visualize things, basically. 
Feynman diagrams are maybe the epitome of that because what this actually represents the quantum field theory equation. It's, it, what, there's a one-for-one -one mapping between the incoming lines, the vertex, the wiggly propagator line here, the vertex here and that, between terms in, in an equation that in perturbation theory and quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, you can solve it and calculate what the probability of this happening is. And you can even do it in perturbation theory. If it was a higher order of perturbation theory, you'd just put more vertices in, so you might put another photon going across here or a little loop of a photon around here. And it just works. It's fantastic. It's actually so seductive that experimentalists are often misled by it and start looking for these diagrams and trying to work measure what diagram they've actually got in their event, which is actually wrong because these are uh, amplitudes, so they're quantum mechanical amplitudes. So you have to be a little careful. It's not like a snooker ball. Um, you know, there, there's no real, it's not really a phone going across here, but there, it's, you, you add up all the possible ways of this happening, you get the answer. But, so you, it often is not, it's like asking which slit did the electron go through if you say what diagram happened, because it's a quantum mechanical process. But, but still, it's very useful, a useful guide. Uh, but it's important, that business, that it's quantum mechanics, because in fact, the only things you measure are the beginning and the end, and, everything, and in between, anything that can happen will happen, if I can quote a famous book. Um, and, and I'll show you how that's important in a minute as, as we see how we work, do work out what's going on. So back to this equation again. It hasn't changed. Um, e equals mc squared. Imagine this is, is um, what's going on at um, an electron-positron collider, like the one that was in the tunnel at CERN before we put the LHC in there. So we've got some, a very high-energy positron, anti-electron, and an electron colliding and annihilating. Okay, The energy is huge. So, oh, I thought I had more diagrams than that, never mind. Um, the energy is huge, um, E equals mc squared, but the mass of a photon is zero. So where's the energy gone in the middle? There's only a photon, its mass is zero. It can't, and and it's, it's at rest because these guys collided in their center of mass frame. So there's no, no way it can be carrying kinetic energy. There's no way it's got any mass because it's a photon. Um, so you've, you've, you've apparently violated the energy momentum conservation there, and then it comes back again, and these guys will be going in different directions, but we'll have the same energy. What happens to the energy in the middle? Well, what I said, this is where it's important that this is not a real, a real particle. This is a, it's what we call a virtual particle. It's, you can think of it as a calculational tool for the probability of this happening in quantum mechanics. And in fact, that's what carries forces. That's, our, that's the quantum field theory picture of carrying forces. It's that virtual particles are being exchanged between um, bodies that, that, and the coupling of the force, the charge, if you like, is, it tells you how strong this vertex is here and tells you how, how likely it is to happen. And the way you, there are a number of ways of thinking of how that can happen, but the, the, I think the, the easiest one and best one, uh, most commonly used one, is to say, well, actually, virtual particles don't have to have the right mass. They can, you can think of it as being related to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, if it makes you feel any happier. I don't think it's actually a way of deriving Heisenberg's uncertainty principle from quantum field theory, in fact. But because they're not real particles, you never get a, a, a virtual photon in a box and have a look at it, or you can never even fire one and, and look at things with it. Um, they, you, they, it doesn't make a lot of sense to force it to have zero mass. It doesn't have to have zero mass. And in fact, this is called the propagator in the diagram. And any particle can appear. An electron could appear in there if, the, if all the lines were right. Um, and it wouldn't have to have the mass of an electron either. Same for gluons, which is more often what we're exchanging at the LHC. And there's a probability associated with this exchange, which goes like 1 over q squared minus m squared all squared. Now, in this equation, m squared is, is what the mass really should be. Um, and so for the photon, it would be zero. And the Q squared is the mass it has to have because of the energy it's got to carry. Um, so it could be very large in this case. And this is obviously a falling function. It fall, as, you, as the particle gets further and further away from the, the real mass it should have, the probability of the exchange gets less and less. And obviously, in, in the limit that it were ex exactly right, you'd have an infinite um, probability here. That doesn't quite happen. There are other things that stop it, but it becomes a bright with a resonant bump, basically, when, it, when that happens. So in this case, for instance, for the photon here, this is LEP colliding, uh, the large electron-positron collider, which was in the tunnel at CERN before the LHC, colliding electrons and positrons at 91 GV center of mass energy. This photon somehow got to carry 91 GV of energy. It's got a mass of 91 GV over C squared. Um, the, the reason they chose 91 GV was because, again, this, this uh, is an amplitude, and there's another possibility here, which is as well as a photon being swapped, you could swap a Z boson which is the carrier of the weak force. And it has say, zero charge and everything. All the conservation laws and things work, so it can happen in there. Again, it makes no sense to say, was it a Z or a photon? In fact, you have to take the two and look at the interference term between them as well. But you, you, you know that this should kick in, and it has a mass of 91 GV over C squared, which is why they were colliding at these energies. 
And you can look at the data from that, um, or collected data from electron-positron colliders all around the world. Um, and this is, a, this is the cross-section, which you can just think of as the, the, the rate, the pro probability of the collision occurring. This is the center of mass energy, which is, you can think of being the mass of the thing in the middle of the diagram. And you see that you know, there, there is a photon, and it wants to have zero mass. And the further away you go from having zero mass, you're forcing it to carry more and more energy, the cross-section is dropping like a stone. And then at some point, something odd happens, and it turns over and back again, and this is 91 GV, where the Z is. And so that 1 over Q squared minus M squared term is falling. You, here, you're a long way away from the Z, and you're getting further and further away from the photon. So that's suppressing the propagators, suppressing the probability. But as you come near to the Z again, the 1 minus Q squared, 1 over Q squared minus M squared becomes close to 1 over 0, and you get a, a blow-up, and it's a resonant phenomenon, basically. And you can also see that um, there are processes, for instance, e plus e minus two photons, where the Z can't enter because the Z, uh, the, the, the Z has no electric charge, so it doesn't couple to the photon, so it will never be decay this way. And that particular probability doesn't have the, the peak, whereas the ones it should do, do. And this was studied to death at the uh, large electric uh, lab, um, really measured incredibly precisely. That's why we know that the, the weak force does what it does. It also sets some very strong indirect constraints on what the Higgs mass is, which we'll come back to in a moment. And you can do this kind of thing in the Hadron machine as well. This is data from Atlas, from about a fifth of the data we took last year. In this case, we're colliding quarks and antiquarks, which are sitting inside our protons. There are virtual antiquarks as well as quarks in the proton. As long as you create pairs of them, it's okay. Um, so you can collide them. And then again, here at 91 GV, you see the, the friendly old Z bump again um, in this kind of diagram. And you can see that we're, we, that you see a few things from this. One is that we've got a much higher energy reach because we're a higher energy machine. It's easier to get protons up to high energies. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And also you can see that we're always frantically looking at this diagram and hoping we see another bump. And these are some fevered imaginings from some theorists of what might be there. Um, we haven't seen anything yet, but honestly, you'd hear about it quite quickly if we did. Because um, you're always thinking, well, there might be another fundamental force, there might be another Z prime sitting around there, and we might just not have seen it because we didn't have the energy. And this is terra incognita, right? This is the first time anyone's looked here. So it's, it could be there, but it's not yet. So back to what is there, the elementary particles. I talked about, I say, I'm come to the nub of the thing about the W, and I talked about the Z now. You've seen the Z. That's how we see a, new, a particle. The Z is that bump. That's what it is. Um, and you get the, the, the answer for your predictions of the cross-section wrong if you don't factor in the fact that the Z boson exists. And the, the key thing then is to talk about is the LHC and this electroweak symmetry breaking is to the relationship between the W and the Z on the one hand, which is the weak force, and the photon on the other hand. And this is a, uh, another of these cross-section plots. Um, this is from the experiment HERO, the Hadron-Electron uh, Ringgang Lager, which was running at DAISY until 2007 which is where I did my PhD, as mentioned in the introduction. And again, this is one of these cross-section plots. And there's a lot, now you get into the stage, hopefully, where you can really understand these plots. Because this is, the, this is now the energy carried by the exchange particle when you bounce an electron off a proton. So it's usually a photon that you bounce off. And this, along here, you've got the, the, this axis is proportional to, it expresses distance, but it's, it's basically proportional to the energy of the thing that, that's exchanged. And this is the probability of it happening. And note, it's a logarithmic scale. So what happens is you exchange a photon. As before, the, the, the higher energy that photon is, the more mass it has to have, so the further away from its comfort zone it is. So the probability falls as it goes to higher and higher energies. It falls like a stone. Um, but yeah, so that, and, and it keeps on falling. This is you go to higher and higher energy. And it's, uh, the, the, this, is, this blue line is then an exchange of a photon. So you bounce an electron off the proton, and it's bounced off as an electron. Another thing that, that can happen is, is, is the red line here is you can swap one of those W bosons, this, this guy, which is charged. And in fact, when you swap a W boson, it carries the charge from the electron away, and the electron turns into a neutrino. So it vanishes, actually. You don't see it, but you see whatever it bounced off, recoiled off. You see that, and you can measure that. And so that's, that's called charge current scattering, it's, and it's entirely the weak force. So you can see why the weak force is called weak, everyday energies, which are right down here. Um, there's many orders of magnitude and strength and probability between the two. And actually, that's because at low energies, the W has got a mass of 80 GeV. So at low energies, it's a long way from where it wants to be in terms of what mass it should be carrying. If you, if you have, want to have a low energy W exchange, you haven't got enough energy to give it 80 GeV, which is what it, it would like to have. 
Um, but, you see, as you go up and up and up in energy, it doesn't fall as quickly as the electromagnetic force. And, in fact, at some point here, they, there's a symmetry between them that's restored. At some, at that, and this is the electroweak unification scale or the electroweak symmetry breaking scale. If you, if you approach it from up here, it's a symmetry breaking scale. If you approach it from down here, it's a unification scale. But either way, it's happening. Um, and, you know, the, again, there's more fevered imaginings up here as to maybe all the forces unify... Um, maybe the strong force comes in, maybe gravity comes in, maybe in the end we can put it all on a T-shirt and we're done. But um, we, this, I, I don't know whether this is going to happen. No one does know. But this is not an even imagining. This is measured. These points are data. This is, this is actually going on in nature. So this is why you don't take a punt on a one billion, you know, half your career and a one billion pound machine or francs or dollars or whatever, euros, um, without knowing that you've got some interesting questions you can address with it. And one of the, uh, the number one question, actually, we can address with the LHC is we're, for the first time, doing physics right up here, well above this symmetry breaking scale, and we want to understand what, what causes it, why, why, why they break. Now, we already know something about what causes it. We know that it's the mass, okay? We know the, the difference, in fact, between the weak force and the electromagnetic force is that the photon's got zero mass and the W and Z have got about 100 GeV of mass. And that's why, that's why everyday energy is that's weak, because it's, it's very unlikely that you will excite um, a 100 GV particle carrier. It doesn't happen very often. Um, but as you go up in energy, that mass, you go up above the scale, what you've done, this is actually translated this into energy. This would be about the mass of the W and Z, about 100 GV. And once you're above the mass, that mass becomes effectively irrelevant. Both of them are a long way from, their, from what their proper mass is, the photon and the W and the Z. And so that, that thing that was driving the difference, which was the mass, is, is irrelevant, and they, they have the same strength. That, so that's already quite a deep level of understanding of what's going on, but it begs the question, you know, what then, what, where's the mass come from? What's going on? Why are they up here behaving as massless up here, and why do they pick up different mass down below? And that's this business of electroweak symmetry breaking. So the, the, there's a problem with this, um, with the whole theory. I mean, you've seen the data, it's the, 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 the previous plot, that this, this unification is going on. But if you write down um, the, the standard model of particle physics in quantum field theory, and, and you, you, it's, based on, it's built on symmetries, in fact. All, symmetry runs through it, like, um, like Blackpool through a stick of rock. Um, the, the, uh, and and it, Tuft and Veltman actually won the Nobel Prize not so long ago for proving that that's not a coincidence, that's not just an aesthetically pleasing bit of maths. That the reason the standard model of particle physics works and gives you finite answers at all orders of perturbation theory is because it's based on these symmetries. Um, and it's, it's mathematically, they proved it was the same statement, in fact, and that's why they won the Nobel Prize. Um, they're gauge, gauge symmetries, they're called. Um, the problem is that mass breaks the gauge symmetry. If you, so in the, in the purest form of the standard model, all particles are massless, which, if you're a theorist, might keep you happy at night, but when you see the data, you see it's wrong. Things have mass. <laughs> so um, th there's a big problem. There was a big problem of how to keep the good properties of the theory and make it predictive, and that means keeping the symmetry, but then the symmetry is transparently, obviously, broken in everyday life because things have mass. In particular, the W and the Z have mass, and the photon doesn't. Um, and that's where Peter Higgs um, and others came in. Um, and it's inspired, in terms of quantum mechanics, you look around, are there, are there symmetries? It, sorry, it was inspired by condensed matter physics. In, in nature, are there instances of completely symmetrical forces that actually give you an asymmetrical situation. And there are many of them. And the, the most common one, maybe, is magnets. Um, so a ferro this is supposed to be a ferromagnet. Um, these are all little magnetic dipoles. And if it's hot, they're all jigging around. Now, electromagnetism is the only force that's relevant here. It's completely spherically symmetric. There's no preferred axis in the universe. Uh, the direction of, of, um, of Maxwell's equations don't pick out a special coordinate system. So everything's symmetric. If I'd made this a circular magnet, it would be better, maybe. It would be completely symmetric. However, as you cool it down, it's energetically favorable for a couple of these to line up. And once they're lined up and, and it's cooling down, the, the energy of motion is less um, vigorous. And then, of course, once two of them are lined up, it's very likely a third will join them. And in the end, everything lines up. And suddenly, you've got a broken symmetry. You've got a, a, a north-south pole in your magnet. And there is a special direction. If you repeat this experiment many times, it'll cool it down then on average, the symmetry is still there because the, the north-south pole doesn't pick a preferred direction. It won't be the same direction every time. But the ground state, the lowest energy state of it cool, is, is, is a state of broken symmetry. And that's a, a, an exact analogy for what the Higgs mechanism is. The, 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 the idea is that there's a potential in the universe, which is kind of 
that people talk about it being the shape of a wine bottle, the bottom of a wine bottle. And uh, you imagine um, a marble in the wine bottle, and you shake it up, and it, it will zoom around. And the whole, the, whole, the whole wine bottle and marble system is symmetric around the, the neck of the bottle, around the middle of the bottle. If you put it down on the table and let the marble settle down and come to rest, the situa situation is no longer symmetric. Because of the bump in the middle, it can't stay in the middle, so it has to roll off to one side and break the symmetry. But again, the symmetry is still there in the system, but in the ground state, it's not there. And that's the idea. The idea is that there's this field, the Higgs field, fills the universe. Um, particles coupled to it, they stick to it according to um, the, the numbers you put in the theory. And the, none of this predicts what those numbers are. It just allows them to happen. But as the universe cools down, these particles, rather than, um, rather than all, all uh, being essentially massless because they're, they're not coupled to this, this thing, uh, the, sorry, that's, I didn't say that very well. The, the Higgs field in the universe is, is kind of not there um, at high energies. But as you cool down, it, it, the, the, the lowest energy state is for there to be a Higgs field everywhere. So you imagine the Higgs field being the displacement from the middle of the wine bottle, if you like. And the, the, lowest, the lowest energy state of the universe is for there to be a non-zero Higgs field everywhere. If you took the Higgs field away, you'd have to increase the energy of the universe. It's, it's a bit odd. And it's that field that comes in and then couples to the particles that means that you can have a fundamental symmetry in the, in the quantum field theory that's not there in everyday life. It's not there in the ground state of the universe at the moment. So I can only really say that in words. I'm not going to go through the math. So I want, but I want to show you something about... Oh, th the final thing is none of that I mentioned was the Higgs boson. That was the Higgs field. Um, Peter Higgs, when he, when he sent his uh, paper in, got it rejected because they said, that's all very good, but how can we tell? You know, it's, just, it's just a it's a mathematical picture for what might be going on, but there was no prediction. So he sent it back, actually, to another journal, saying, well, yeah, but if there's fields everywhere, you can have a wave in the field. You can excite an oscillation in the field, and I'll call it, a, it will be a boson. <laughs> and then it became the Higgs boson. And that, that's, so the Higgs boson is not, this, this is important in, in terms of we're not just collecting another particle for the sake of it. It's the experimental evidence that this picture of how symmetries and mass work is correct. That's the only the, the unique prediction of this theory is that if this field's there, then you should be able to have excite, excite, uh, quantum excitations in it, which is essentially the Higgs boson. So I'll say a little bit in the last couple of minutes about how we're looking for it. I'll skip over that because I haven't got time. I want to explain the plots to you. This was a paper that I wrote with one of my students on one of the ways of finding the Higgs. But this is the current state of play. And again, this is like those plots I was showing you before. This is, this is the cross-section here. Um, the, if you like the number of events in this case, but it's the probability of the thing happening. What we've done is we've measured all the photon pairs in the, in the Atlas detector in the whole of 2011 um, when we were uh, collecting data. And we've added them together and seen what their mass was. And if there was a little virtual Higgs in the middle of any diagram there, it would show up as a bump in this distribution. And there's a hint of a bump here, these three points maybe. Not, obviously not this one, but, but the, 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 this is what the evidence for the Higgs boson, or one of the bits of evidence for the Higgs boson being there is. It's about two and a half sigma significance. It's not compelling yet, but it's very suggestive. And there are other ways it can also decay. It also can decay to, to Z bosons. And if it was going to do that, you'd expect a few events here. And in fact, there are three events. It's, you know, it's very, but it's in the same place as the last one, same mass. So, and CMS has something similar on their experiment. So it begins to add up and it begins to smell like the Higgs boson, but we're not sure yet. We're, we're taking data again now for that reason. And these are the kind of plots that you see. Um, the, the, this is a limit plot. Um, basically, when the line, the, the, the one is the prediction for the, the number of Higgs, the, the, the Higgs cross-section in the standard model. This is the mass of the Higgs along here. And the, the dashed line is where we would have expected to exclude the Higgs. So every time the, 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 move, the, the wiggly dashed line goes below the, the horizontal line, is where the Higgs, we, we have sensitivity. If the Higgs was there, we should have seen it. And if we haven't seen it, therefore we've ruled it out. And then the, the, you could do all that without ever doing an experiment, but the black line is the data. That's what we've actually ruled out. So you can see that a year ago, the Higgs could have been anywhere in this region, basically. And now we know it's not anywhere between here and right down here. And if you zoom in on the low mass end then, and remember, we've already wiped out a whole bunch of real estate the Higgs could have been in up here. This is where we are, following the line, and it diverges from the line here. And this is the, the little bump that you saw, the, the, the hint that it might be there. If there was no Higgs, we would have expected to exclude it down to about 115 GV. In fact, we haven't. We've only excluded it down to 127 or so. And we actually have a hint of a signal here. And in fact, we've been lucky and we've excluded it even lower mass than we, the, the, you know, these lines. You can see from the wiggles that we're on the edge of statistics. It's, it's, it could wiggle the other direction this year. We'll see. But anyway, this is what it's all about. 
So I watched this space. Those, those were produced uh, last month, last month, March. The, the, this data was the kind of final word from the, the 2011 data. We now have about, this, this is Femta Bounds, is just how, how we measure it, but that was from the whole year's running. It's the amount of luminosity collected. We now have about two more of these in the bag with a slightly higher energy. By the end of the year, we should have about five times as much data as we had on this plot um, and with a slightly higher energy, and that should be enough either to squish this down and get rid of the Higgs forever or make it go into something that's actually real in nature. So what we might learn from the LHC, I, the main thing, what I talked about is how well the standard model works above the electroweak symmetry breaking scale, why the WZ have mass, where the mass comes from. There, may, there are other things. There might be other new particles and forces, extra dimensions, mini black holes. Understand, we might get a hint of, of what, how gravity fits into all this. But these are increasingly speculative. If you go down this, we know we'll do. And the bottom line is that we're doing physics in this fundamentally new regime of physics above the electroweak symmetry breaking scale, and it's just wonderful to see what's going on up there, to be honest. And uh, Ralph Hoyer, who's a, a very conservative um, director general of CERN, said in October 2011, I think by this time next year I'll be able to bring you either the Higgs boson or the message that it doesn't exist. Well, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then, and I think that prediction still stands. Thanks very much, John. I followed almost all of that. I mean, it was really, for, for an earth scientist confession, I'm an earth scientist, um, I found it really engaging, and I'm, I feel I actually understand why we're looking for Higgs bosons much more now. Are there any questions from the audience for John? Cool. Uh, you have huge data volumes, uh, so you can't keep it all. Mm -hmm. So how do you decide what you're going to throw away? And are you sure you're not throwing away anything interesting? Um, you can never be 100% sure, but you, what you do want to be sure is that your criteria are broad enough that you're not, you don't end up only seeing what you're expected to see, that's for sure. Um, what we do, of course, we, we have online selection systems that we call triggers that, that keep the data com comes through in a synchronous pipeline, and if you decide one bucket is interesting, you save it, otherwise it drops off the end and gets replaced by the next lot. Um, we look for things like um, large energy transfer. So most most proton-proton collisions are kind of glancing collisions, and there isn't much energy transverse to the beam. So one good thing is transverse energy. Energy imbalances is a sign there's a neutrino or something there. Muons are a giveaway that something. So we've got very broad criteria that if any of those things or any combination of those things happen, we'll give the event a closer look. And we have increasingly sophisticated analyses we can run online. Of course, we keep an unbiased sample of everything anyway, but that's not a lot of use if you've got a very rare process. That, you know, but, but we do monitor all these things by looking at the unbiased samples as well. And in the end, we, we, we ratchet up the criteria um, and we make sure we have samples of everything that we need. It's, it's a challenge. There are, the rates are so high now that we're losing some events that we do want to keep. We, we know what they look like, but we'd rather have more of them and we can't keep them all. Um, because, so it's, it's tricky. Yeah, excuse this naive question, perhaps I'm an astronomer. Um, if the Higgs really is, or does turn out to be at 125 GeV, mm -hmm. why wasn't it found sooner when the Z was at 100 GeV and that yeah. was easy in these terms? Yes, um, there are a number of reasons for that. Um, one is, I mean, if, if it's really there, for instance, there will have been lots of Higgses produced already at the Tevatron, but they couldn't find them because the, the background is horrible. What, what it decays to... Well, mostly, when it's, if it's 125, is to be quarks, which are none of the plots I showed you would be quarks. In fact, that was the paper I wrote with my student. It was about picking that channel out as well, which is an important one to do. But we're finding it in the case of photons and zeds, which are really, really rare, but they're very clean. And they're, very, you know, they're, they're either got a very flat background under them or they've got, in the Z case of the Z, almost no background. Um, the Z itself has a much stronger coupling to things. So... Um, Z was found in, in E plus C minus collisions, for instance. It couples, there's a, there's a fairly strong coupling. If, if we could collide muons together, which are heavier, then we'd have seen a Higgs earlier because the Higgs couples to mass. So the heavier the particle is, the more, more of them will be produced. But electrons are very light, so we just, and that's mainly what we, that's why we found a Z and things. Or electrons and quarks, actually, are, are very light. The, the, and, and so the, the rates are much lower and the backgrounds are worse, basically. Andy's question. Will going from seven 
to 8TV make a difference and why, why will it make a difference? It, it makes a difference. Um, in some of it good, some of it bad, actually. Um, overall, it's good. That's why we're doing it. But there are dis some disadvantages. So you've got to look at... Um, the, pro the proton is not, obviously not an elementary particle, what we're and it has a distribution of quarks and gluons inside it. And so your average quark in, in a proton carries about a tenth of the energy of the proton, and it's quite a steeply falling curve as you go up to x of 1. Right? And so uh, it, what you're doing is pushing yourself up that curve, so you have more quarks at higher energy. So more quarks will have enough energy to produce a Higgs boson in, in the, uh, if you increase your energy. So that's a good thing. The, uh, the slightly bad thing about it is also the backgrounds go up, and some of them go up faster than the signal, in fact. So pairs of top quarks are a really nasty background for a lot of this, and there will be more of those produced. So it swings and roundabouts. In fact, some of the, the stuff of the Tevatron is in some ways cleaner than the LHC for finding it, but they couldn't get the data rates high enough. So um, it will help us, and overall it will help us, but it's not a completely simple picture. That's just how it does. Any more questions? I've got, oh, right, yes. Um, given that there seem to be some signals that are a bit difficult for you to um, detect from the background, is there any scope for a citizen science project to help you find them? Um, the, there is. Um, I'm not sure, I don't think about data mining really, no, because I think we're, we're so on a hair trigger for finding these things that we'd, we'd find them first. There is an LHC at home project that allows people to participate, but usually what it's doing is simulating events, which is a, a very important thing that we need to do. So we have detailed software models of the detector built out of Jayon, if you know, if you know things, which model all the, the interactions and the readout. And getting high statistic samples of those is really challenging, and then comparing them to the data. So some of that people do participate in. Um, but I, I, I don't think the data mining idea of, of get people, the citizen science thing, I'm, I don't see how it would work, but that may just be a failure of my imagination. If you've got any ideas, let me know. <laughs> it could be interesting. Following, following on from Andy's question, I, I'm used to detectors and understanding of that. Some of the breakthroughs in, in different areas of science are actually to do with the improvements in the technology of the detectors. So do you think the scope, you say that we would have detected the Higgs mm -hmm. earlier, if, it's being, if, it will, if it is going to be detected, but actually it's to do with the background and the area where you're trying to do it. Is there scope for improvements in detectors? Yeah, and in fact, if you look at the, the uh, and even in algorithms, in fact, as well. So that might be an area where science could help actually improving such algorithms. Mm -hmm. So one of the key things is, is, is um, vertexing, for instance. And I, I talked about the silicon detectors. If the Higgs is where it is, then it's decaying to B quarks. B quarks decay weakly, so they travel a few hundred microns before they decay. They're in a hadron, but they, they, you see a, a secondary vertex decay. And that's a really, really powerful technique for beating down backgrounds. Mm. And we're using that. Even with that, we've still got a, a struggling, but we wouldn't have even had a, a cat in hell's chance without that. So there are things like that. And, and the Tevatron guys improved their vertex finding in the last runs that they took before they shut down, and that made a big difference to their sensitivity. Um, I can't resist showing this. Where are we? Yeah, this, because this is what I worked on with Adam, and I like it. Um, but this is, an, this is how you might find the Higgs going to Bs against the backgrounds, and you'd rely on events where it's actually travelling very fast and it's boosted. And then you tag two B quark decays inside one single one of these jets of hadrons, and that actually allow, allows you to beat the background down a lot because the main background to this is top-anti-top -top reduction, mm. and there are two Bs from that, but they're in different directions usually. So if you've got two, it's very unlikely that you get two collimated Bs and, of course, they add up to the mass of the Higgs and so on. So there are, there are and this is, my, this is what I've been working on, but there are, there are people having ideas all the time as to how to tweak things and improve things. Okay. That's really interesting. Thanks. And Steve? Do you think the Higgs is the only fundamental scalar field? Um, if you asked me a year ago, I'd have said, no, there isn't even a Higgs, actually. I was never a Higgs fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, what do you think? <laughs> there, there's, um, I mean, there is the vacuum energy problem, right, which is a small matter of what, 10 to the 100 wrong amount of energy in the universe compared to the Higgs field. So there's clearly a lot more we don't know, so I wouldn't rule out there being another one. I'm not, it may be that the Higgs is not even fundamental as well, right? There, there are plenty of ways of having a composite Higgs, and that, in fact, if there had been no Higgs, the way you'd have got around that would be by having a, another layer of substructure. 
Because uh, remember, most of the mass in the universe actually doesn't come from the Higgs. It comes from the strong force. It's the binding, the binding energy of quarks inside neutrons is what, and protons is actually where most of it comes from. But without the fundamental mass, you'd never get that either. So the Higgs is still the linchpin, but nevertheless. And people, there's, I think, all technical models where, where you, you can do a similar thing. You have a vacuum condensate like you do in strong force that gives you the mass for the, of the hadrons. You have a vacuum condensate of some other layer of self-structure that gives you the mass of the W and the Z and things. And, and so there, there are theories on the market like that. And even if we find a scalar Higgs, it's not, it doesn't mean it's definitely fundamental. It means it's playing, it may still be an effective theory. Okay. Can we thank John again for a great talk? Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs>